or this evening to facil- facilitate the event with all of my friends, the volunteers. They're wearing name tags, and we can't do it without them. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many of them are still outside welcome, welcoming our guests. And if you'd like to volunteer, you can ask us how to do that. It's very fun to be part of the Sangha. Um, If Mark takes questions tonight, please wait for a volunteer to bring you the microphone so we can all hear you. If you would like an assisted hearing device, they're in the back and you can pick one up now. I'd love for everyone to turn off their cell phones now. It's so lovely not to be interrupted during meditation by a cell phone ringing. Um, You may have seen the scrumptious-looking cookies outside from Bovine Bakery. They are available for purchase, and the money goes to the family program. And I must say, we had a family day yesterday. And my ears are still ringing from the screaming, but it was a lovely day. The kids love it. The families love it. So if you want to support family day, buy a cookie. All right. Uh, We have a bookstore in the far side of the building, and you're uh, welcome to peruse. We have a volunteer, George, in the bookstore this evening. Mark's books are on display in the tea area and available for purchase in the bookstore, along with many other wonderful things. Um, Philip Moffat is here next Monday, and you can uh, either come out and visit in person or watch on live stream. And that reminds me to say hello to the live stream people who are watching from home tonight. And so you know, you can purchase live stream up to midnight, the evening of the event, and then you have a week to watch it. Let me make sure that's true. Yes, it's available for one week and you can purchase it up to midnight, the evening of the event. And now it's time to introduce our speaker tonight, Mark Coleman. I'm going to introduce him by way of saying, on Friday, there is still room left for opening to joy and peace in nature. And this is a meditation day in nature, and I know it's one of um, the most beloved events here at Spirit Rock. Am I right? The person that told me that is right there. You can ask Helga here if you have any questions regarding the Nature Day. So you can sign up. There's still space. You wear your sunscreen and a hat and bring water and your lunch. And Mark will walk everyone silently at 9.30 in the morning into nature. And you meditate outside all day. So that's a lovely event. And Mark also has online events that you can sign up for any time. They're self-paced. And I think that's what I know about Mark. He leads nature events in nature and with water. With water and nature. They're lovely. They're well attended. Yeah. And they sell out. So make sure you pick up a postcard outside if that interests you. Mark, sound, everything's working. Have a, have a perfect evening. Thank you, Romy. My pleasure. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Spirit Rock. Anybody new here today, Spirit Rock? One or two? Welcome. Welcome. So, um, what a pleasure to be sitting here in this beautiful Dharma Hall. 
and sitting together with community, like-minded folks who care about meditation, waking up, and whatever else you hear for cookies, I don't know, tea. No, it's a, it's a beautiful place to practice here. And uh, easy to take for granted. I work with students all over the country and beyond, and um, they're often saying, and it's why we have people tuning in to the live stream, is because uh, there's not many places where we have such a beautiful Dharma meditation center on our doorstep. So, not to be taken for granted. Anyhow, happy to be here. I just came back from teaching in nature in Santa Fe, just outside of Santa Fe, and um, in a Zen center actually, which was quite lovely to be in a different tradition, different but same. And um, got a little bit of a reverb here on the sound, I think. So take a moment to, th- to reflect on why you're here. Why do you come to an evening like this? What, what, what's your intention, motivation for coming to a Dharma center, or a Dharma class? Perhaps it's the meditation, perhaps it's the Sangha, the community. Perhaps it's a way of plugging back into what's important. Very easy to get lost in the busyness of our lives and the superficiality of mainstream culture and forget the deeper rhythms, the deeper values, the deeper purpose and meaning of what it means to be human, what it means to be awake. And um, I was just talking with a friend the other day about... um, who would sort of, as, as we often can do, fall, fell off the bandwagon of practice and how much, how different her life felt because of not sustaining her meditation practice and reflection and inquiry. And so we come together like this to recharge our batteries, our, our Dharma batteries. And... Um, Remember, you know, what's, what's important. And so these teachings are ways to remi- really remind us. What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be present? What does it mean to meet life and experience in each other with presence, kindness? What does it mean to live wisely in this crazy world that we inhabit. So we'll sit together and I'll say some things, just a little guidance, and then we'll take a break and then we'll, I'll give a Dharma talk that relates to the theme of change.
So one of the things I've been talking a lot about in my retreats is the difference between meditation and the cultivation of meditative awareness. That what, what, what our practice is doing, whatever form, technique we're doing, in this, at least in this practice, through mindfulness, is supporting us to cultivate and live with a meditative presence, presence of awareness. And mindfulness practice allows us to cultivate and establish that awareness. Or as the Buddha referred to in the Satipatthana text where these teachings have their origin, talked about entering and abiding in awareness. Entering into and abiding in awareness. We're not doing it. We're not manufacturing it. We're entering and abiding in awareness. So we cultivate attention, breath, body, sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts, whatever is happening in our experience as a way to enter in and abide and establish this mindful awareness. So finding a comfortable posture where you can sit upright, relaxed, alert. I know for many of you this is the end of a long day and so if you're tired you might want to keep your eyes just a little bit open. Just lower gaze. If you get really sleepy you might want to stand exactly where you are to bring a little more vitality. Taking a couple of deeper breaths just to feel into fullness of sitting, being human. Turning our attention to the inner landscape, sensing your body sitting. Feeling the contact of the body with the ground, chair, the cushion. Just knowing that you've arrived here. Mindfulness of body. Sensing your body and its sensations, its movements. What's the inner experience of body? Mindfulness of body in the body. within that experience of body there's the experience of movement of breath of inhale, exhale expansion, lifting of the torso expansion, contraction so letting your attention rest with this simple movement as a way to establish mindful presence
body to breathe itself, simply attuning, permeating awareness into breath. Awareness of body sitting. And it doesn't take too long normally to notice that our attention has a life of its own. Meanders here and there, gets absorbed into thoughts and memories and plans and images. Or spaces out, falls asleep. And so part of the training is to notice, to recognize without judgment this habit of mind of distraction wandering. And so, why we train, why we utilize the felt sense of the breath, the felt sense of the body, as a way to re-arrive, re-establish awareness here, over and over, on the simplicity of sitting, breathing, times present to sounds, Times present to moods, states of mind. That is a support for the continuity of attention to keep re-establishing awareness of breath, body, body being breathed experience being known.
Where is your attention in this moment? If not here, being curious where the mind roams. Committing to re-establishing awareness over and over. Absorbing attention in this moment of sitting, breathing, sensing, listening. Noticing the changing nature of experience, moment by moment.
as we bring the practice to a close, noticing quality of attention, presence. Awareness again to your whole body sitting, the sounds in the room, the space in which we're sitting. And you're on time opening your eyes and bring that same awareness to seeing. Seeing. Hearing, sensing, breathing, moving, talking, eating, all the same from the perspective of awareness, just the next thing to be present to. So, we'll take a little break here to have some tea and cookies and as Romy was mentioning um, I have a whole nature uh, program here and also outside of Spirit Rock I teach a lot of different nature retreats and they are filling very quickly these days so um, if you want to know about those and uh, be able to get in because they do fill out about six months ahead of time um, you can sign up for my uh, newsletter. I think there's a sign-up sheet on the back table where you came in. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful way to bring this practice outside. And I'm sure many of you are nature lovers in here. So let's take a pause and we'll come back in about 15 minutes. Don't eat too many of those monster cookies. But please say hello to someone sitting next to you before you get up from your seat.
Check, check, check.
So there's a cartoon, I've shared it here before, some of you might remember this. It's a three-caption cartoon, and the first caption, picture of a person, the history of mankind, it's just a face. Second caption, this person scratching their chin with a puzzled look, and with a caption underneath saying, what am I doing here? And the third caption, remember this is the history of mankind, third caption, the end. So we're in the middle. What am I doing here? (laughs) What am I doing here tonight? (laughs) What am I doing here in my life? What am I doing here with whoever and whatever and wherever and all that? So I'm sort of exploring that middle caption tonight. And really the whole of Dharma teaching is pointing to that middle caption. What am I doing here? But I'm very specifically pointing to the middle caption because I'm going to talk about the Dharma of midlife, the Dharma of aging, and particularly the Dharma of middle age, partly because that's where I find myself. So why not talk about one's experience in relationship to Dharma? And I'm not the only one, apparently, (laughs) who's aging. Anybody not aging here? Sometimes I'll ask a question like, you know, who's getting older? And not everyone will put their hand up. (laughs) Who's aging? Not everyone puts their hand up. Because we have this assumption that aging means a certain age one starts aging. Right? In your teens, you don't think you're aging. Well, you're hoping to get older because it's cool to be older. And in your 20s, you're just, you know, youthful and vibrant. and, And then, you know, the... You know, that, that sort of amnesia or delusion about not aging at some point starts to knock on the door. Different ages, depending on your conditions and your health and your body and reflection and all of that. Life circumstances. A uh, friend, colleague, um, shifted his teaching, Dharma teaching, from saying everything, everything changes to everything ages. So you know the kernel of one of the kernels of Buddhist teaching is around impermanence, around transience. Everything changes. Well, also everything ages. It's an interesting reflection. What is it that doesn't age? That's a koan. I just came from a Zen temple, so I'm going to throw lots of koans at you, which are unanswerable. Well, not unanswerable, but confounding questions. So according to a survey of 2,000 British adults, um, one is middle-aged if they enjoy taking afternoon naps, (laughs) moan when they bend over, frustrated by modern technology, choose comfort over style when it comes to clothing and shoes, the preference of a night in rather than a night out, talking a lot about your joints and ailments, what my friends called an organ recital. Uh, Getting more hairy, especially in the ears and eyebrows and nose and face and other places you'd rather hair wouldn't appear. Thinking policemen, this is random, this one. There's a list of 50 things. I only got some of them. Thinking policemen, teachers, and doctors look really young. (laughs) I think at some point, 
everybody just looks really young. Or how come they're old enough to drive? Shouldn't they have a parental escort or something? So two years ago, approximately, it was the first time that all the baby boomers were over 50. Interesting statistic. This one's even more interesting. The average life expectancy in 2000, the year 2000 was 77. And in the 2100, which none of us will make it, but apparently the, the projections are, if we're actually still alive on this planet, um, the average life expectancy will be 107 years. I'm not sure I want to live till I'm 107, to be honest. But anyhow, that's another story. And we're also in, in an interesting time because of technolo- digital technology, internet, and the, the shift of information. The shift of power is moving much, much younger. Younger generations have much more power than they ever did because of access to information and technology. Hence that statistic that you're frustrated by modern technology is a sign that you're getting into middle age. I'll say more about that later. Quote from Rumi. The result of my life is no more than three words. I was raw. I became cooked. I was burnt. It's pretty sobering. And many things in our lives, like stress, like our digital fascination and fixation, I would say are improving the cooking speed. It's like turning up the temperature. So um, I turned 50 a couple of years ago and um, it's always an interesting to see how one relates to these landmarks, right? these numbers. Right? One level don't mean anything. On another level, culturally and socially and personally can mean a lot. And you know, this theme of aging is interesting because you know, Dharma teachings point to timelessness and agelessness right? and that which is beyond time and space. Right? That we are, we, we're unable to be defined and limited by time and age and etc. And yet, we inhabit a body that is subject to the law like everything else of entropy, of change, or aging. And um, so it's, an, you know, just to think for yourself, how are you relating to this reality? of aging. How is it when you meet, hit these, these, these milestones? I was just having dinner with a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine in Santa Fe, and she just turned 70. And, and her, her reflection on turning 70, she's an old Zen student, and her reflection was um, a different vantage point of looking at the downhill slope. I feel like at 50, there's a, there's, I'm looking on the downhill slope. She felt like she's a lot further down the downhill slope. And it was quite sobering for her to turn 70, as it is for many of us turning, you know, hitting these milestones, whatever the milestones are for us. 
um, technically middle age is 45 to 65, but I'm, I'm, I really, I'm talking about middle age because that's been a reflection of mine and also because I'm working with um, a group uh, right now that I'm going to be teaching of um, professional uh, women who are all around this age and we're exploring these themes and, and the issues that come up around aging and identity and um, the stories and the fears that come up around that. And of course, the, the relationship to that is, is usually mixed. And how we relate to anything you know, really defines the nature of that relationship or that experience. And so, you know, we say over and over and over and over again, these teachings, it's not what's happening, but how we relate to it. Right? Whether it's aging or sickness or joy or sorrow, it's not the thing in itself that is a determinant of well-being or suffering. It's, it's our attitude, our relationship, our story, our identification with it. So, um, you know, working with this group, you know, there's some reflections around the joys that come with getting older. More wisdom, maybe. A little bit. A <laughs> little bit of learning. A little bit, hopefully, um, wise reflection. A little bit more ease. A little bit more well-being. Not getting bothered by so much stuff. Easier to let go at times. Easier not to take things so seriously or to take oneself so seriously. Or able to laugh at oneself at one's foibles and neuroses and just the ways we get so humanly caught up in things. So, you know, to think about the the whole picture and how we relate to that. You know, generally aging, particularly in this culture, because we live in a very ageist culture with very little respect for elders then it's seen as a negative thing. And we have the fashion industry and the beauty industry and the diet industry and the cosmetic industry and the plastic surgery industry and all of those industries um, promoting uh, a kind of youthfulness as being necessary or the most important thing. So, I just want to just like you to shout out. What do you see the the fruits of aging? So I mentioned a few: wisdom, more ease, a little more sense of humor, maybe greater perspective. Grandchildren. Grandchildren. Yes. What a what a gift. Right. Self-awareness, greater self-awareness, greater self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. See the preciousness in life. See the preciousness in life, right? So as we we feel the fleetingness, right? We, you know, it's a deep reflection of mine, and I've shared this also with this group before. Of I have a practice called um, one less. Right? Each time we do something, 
It's one less thing we will do it before we die. Each time you come to Spirit Rock, it's one less time you'll be here before you die. This beautiful full moon that's rising tonight, one less full moon that we will see in this lifetime. This beautiful autumn colors, I was just in the mountains in Colorado and New Mexico, beautiful golden medallions of aspens and cottonwoods and blazing hillsides of yellow and reds. One less autumn I will see in this lifetime. So one can be depressed by that, or one can go, wow, who knows how many autumn colors I will see. I better wake up. I better be present. I better relish this full moon because I don't know how many full moons I have left. Maybe one or two. Maybe a few dozen. Maybe a few hundred. Maybe. That would be optimistic. So we can use it as a sense of preciousness of appreciating our grandchildren and our friends and any moment. What else? Fruits of... Pardon? Mastery. Yes, we become masterful in things that we apply ourselves to, whether it's meditation or parenting or our work or our art or our service. Yeah, no, and it's, and it's a... It's a um, it's a beautiful thing to feel one's mastery in something, having, one, having applied oneself for a long time. And it takes a while to become masterful at something. It takes you know, years, usually decades, my, decades of my experience. Yeah. What else? Opportunities for letting go. Opportunities for letting go. Lots of opportunities for letting go. Right. I'll talk about that. Yeah. Lots of opportunities to practice humility. Appreciating the mystery. Yeah, so one becomes perhaps hopefully more attuned to the mystery, the mystical, mysterious nature of life and experience. That one minute here and the next minute we're not and just the mystery of anything. Compassion, right? Our heart, hopefully over time, tenderizes, becomes more, we become more attuned and aware of the vulnerability of what it means to be human, of how hard life is and how hard other people's lives are. And we have a more skill or sensitivity or openness to feeling the pain of others and to feeling the responsiveness of the heart. Yeah, it's a beautiful quality. I know that really developed. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I really had any sense of what genuine compassion was. Maybe even my 40s that started to really flesh out. Experiencing the power of grief. Experiencing the power of grief. Yeah. One gets to practice a lot with loss. The older we get, we lose friends. We lose a lot of things. Health, vitality, loved ones. Careers, relationships, sometimes one's country. Yeah. Yeah. And so that seasons the heart, and it matures the soul. You know, we can we, when we meet people who've lived fully and well, 
we can feel that maturation, we can feel the soulfulness, we can feel the fullness. You know, we can be with a young, someone who's young, who's vital and, and vibrant and alive, but the, the usually, it's a rare, rare case, but usually there's not a maturation of the soul that happens with the seasoning of time and struggle and beauty and loss and whatnot. Opportunity for opportunity for whatever. Okay, yeah, opportunity. Uh-huh. Pardon? Opportunity to be useful. Mm-hmm. Right to leave a legacy, to share one's wisdom, to share one's the fruit of one's life. Yeah. yeah. To be able to connect with your parents as as friends, right? So moving into a different stage of relating to them um, more as human beings rather than in a structured relationship. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Appreciation of gravity. Appreciation of gravity. gravity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. I was list- I was watching. Um, uh, oh, Stephen Colbert which is probably the best way to get political news these days. And um, he (laughs) made this really biting comment of somebody, he showed a picture of some politician, I didn't even know who it was, and he said, that's the biggest pair of shopping bags I've seen under someone's eyes before. That's gravity at work. (laughs) It's a little mean, but you know. It was kind of funny. Gratitude, yes, gratitude, right? So much to be grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to just to hear the different reflections, the different facets, right? Because you know, I think in general, both in our internal reflection and our social reflection, and you know, there's a lot of things about aging that are hard. Loss. Decline in vitality. Decline in, in physicality. You know, I count the years. I'm I'm a, I'm a as avid nature seeker and backpacker and hiker and wilderness lover. And you know, I count the years that I'll be able to do that. You know, in 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 my health. You know, one can never know whether one's knees, ankles, thighs, feet or whatever, choose to not cooperate with your backpack anymore. Um, so, yeah, so being grateful for what we have. And then being, and then noticing, you know, what kind of stories and narratives we build around it. Because our thoughts, to some, to some degree, construct our reality. So how do we perceive ourselves and our age and our aging? Can we hold those constructs lightly? Not to deny the reality of aging because it's happening. You just have to look in the mirror and, you know, there it is. But so coming back to working with this group, it was just interesting just hearing about what was alive for this age group. 
And some things that, that I think are poignant around this time is one begins to um, look at uh, the dreams and visions one had for one's life. Unrealized expectations, unrealized potential, unrealized paths. You know, when you're 20s, like, I can do anything. 30s, yeah, anything's possible. At some point, those, those um, avenues begin to close a little become less possible, less do it for various reasons. Health, money, resources, family, ties, who, many, many reasons. So the sense of tapering possibilities. Some real, some imagined. Or changing relationships with our spouses, our children. So some reflections for you. You know, really just to reflect on where, how do you bring your practice of mindfulness, awareness, and compassion, and wisdom, clear seeing, to where you are in your life, however old you are, whether you're 20 or 90? And where may you be challenged, resistant, or struggling, or creating suffering in relationship to where you are in the aging cycle? And where is the room for growth, for understanding, for compassion? So I've partly been reflecting on this theme. I was invited by a dear friend of mine, Chip Conley, who's just written a book. He used to, he used to, he was founder of Joie de Vivre Hotels, and then he was a senior advisor for Airbnb during their meteoric growth, because they're a bunch of young techie kids who had no idea about hospitality. They just had a good idea about putting some airbeds on a floor in New York and suddenly it was a multi-billion dollar business and they were clueless about hospitality, which is what they're in, the hospitality business. And Chip had 20-some years as an expert in, in hospitality, so he came in as an elder, as an ad- advisor, strategic, strategic advisor, and um, basically in the role of an elder because he was twice as old as these kids running the company. And um, and he realized that as a modern elder in that situation, particularly in a tech company, that he had to learn as much as he had to give sage advice. He knew nothing about tech. They knew everything about tech, nothing about hospitality, and vice versa. And so he realized that the role of a modern elder requires reskilling, learning. And the phrase that I have taken from him that, that I really like, he said that the role of the modern elder, you'd go to the, 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 the sorry, you go to the old elder, the elder of you know Jan, the elder of before, now. I can't think of the word. <laughs> you know, back in the day you'd go see an elder for the right answers. Today, you, the modern elder, you go to for the right questions. Because right? often the modern elder may not know, but a wise elder will know the right questions to ask. I thought there was a tremendously good reframe. It's not that you, a modern elder doesn't have answers or wisdom, but also knows how to ask the right questions. So, out of his time there, he um, 
it's created his, his new book is called um, uh, some of you might know um, oh, come to me um, basically it's about reinventing uh, midlife I think it's called the, um, the something of a modern elder and um, so he's created this uh, modern elder academy down in his place in Baja which I went to teach on this year and and next year and he invites people in midlife so people roughly in their mid 40s to mid 60s who have had a successful career are in transition and yet very clearly not ready to retire in the retirement age has been pushed back 10, 20, maybe 30 years sometimes and so looking to reinvent themselves and looking to ask, what's true now? What am I going to do with these skills and experience? And how can I put that to good use? And so he coined this idea of, of people in this transition in midlife to take a gap year, a midlife gap year, which I think is such a fabulous idea. You know, where you know, we all have seasons in our work. Right? We do something like you've come to mastery with something. You know, usually takes, I'd say, a good 20 years. And at some point, however much you might have loved something, it often sort of it just wears out. You know, it's just like the soul's wanting some new development, new stretch, new growth, new opportunity, new expression. And so he's been encouraging people to take a gap year or some version of, you know, it's a luxury to take a year, um, but maybe even a month or a couple of months. And he has this facility now where people go and, and immerse with other people in this same transition zone and meditate and reflect and journal and, and learn different new skills. Um, and I just think it's a really wonderful way of framing this, this time. It's a quote from the Buddha, no, from the Buddha, from the texts. Uh, This is Ananda, who is the Buddha's cousin and trusted attendant. It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous how the blessed one's skin that was once so golden and bright is now so flaccid and wrinkled. It is wonderful. It is amazing how the Buddha's skin was so young and bright and now it's old and wrinkled. (laughs) You look in the mirror and say that, oh, how wonderful, look, my skin is so wrinkled. Close feet are growing, deepening, extending their grooves into my face, how wonderful. <laughs> no, we kind of stitch it up and stretch it and, and do whatever we can, you know. You know, but from the perspective of the teaching, oh, look, even the, the, great, the great Buddha Ages and, you know, gets wrinkled. It's a very different perspective. All right, life, natural, aging, happens. This is from Rumi again. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Yesterday I was clever, So I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, or maybe 
several decades later, I am wise, wiser and I'm slowly changing myself. So, as you know, our practice of mindfulness, Dharma practice, is, is, the, the, is a simple, radical learning to meet life experience as it is, without delusion or distraction. It's a radical looking into the truth of our experience. And in the Korean, one, one Korean Zen tradition, the koan, the question is, what is this? What is this? What is this moment? What is this life? What is this body? What is this person? What is this relationship? What is this moment? It's a wonderful question. What is this? Not to take it for granted, not to think we know, but to deeply inquire. What, is, what does it mean to age? What is aging? If I'm not this body and mind, then what's aging? Am I aging? We look in the mirror and we still think we're seven years old. And we go, How, who's that wrinkly old gray-haired person? Oh, right, that's the body that I'm habiting. But it's not how we feel inside, right? We usually feel decades younger than we actually are or look. Which is, that's mysterious in itself. How can we have this identity of being, you know, whatever your sort of sense of yourself is? 30, 20 something, 30 something, 40 something, I don't know. But it's usually younger, right? Quite a bit younger. Maybe it's wishful thinking, but it's actually a felt sense, mostly. It's like we feel younger and brighter, unless we don't, and then we don't, but then we feel, you know, something else. So our practice is to meet this, to hold the discomfort or the pain or the struggle or the suffering or the joy of whatever's here. I remember everyone who's just started wearing glasses finally copping to the fact that I'm, you know, can't see much as I put them on. And it's always startling when I put my have my glasses on and I look in the mirror. It's like, wow, God, I really am getting a lot of wrinkles. A lot older than I think I am. And I laugh usually. <laughs> So, in the context of um, one of the great sort of Buddhist schemas, the four truths or the four tasks, we can look at this process of aging within that context. So, the the four truths, just to remind you, truth of unsatisfactoriness, the cause of unsatisfactoriness, our reactivity to life, the possibility of freeing that reactivity and finding ease, and then the path leading to that peace. So the four truths, and this is a very cursory sort of stab at this, but the four truths of aging. The The first truth there is unsatisfactoriness. One of the fundamental unsatisfactory qualities of life is we change and we age. It's just how it is. But it's not suffering, it's just the way it is. The second truth, the cause of suffering, is our reactivity to experience. 
if we're reacting and struggling and hating and judging and comparing ourselves around our aging process, then we're suffering. Because we're reacting to the reality of it. And we all react to it at times in different ways. Quite normal, quite human, and adds unnecessary suffering. And then the third truth, to release the reactivity, to release the contention and the struggle with this process. Not easy. Because we want life and ourselves and experience to be a certain way. Like, we don't want to get older. Anybody here want to get older? Yes? Anybody want to be older than you are right now? Yeah? Okay, few of you, okay. All right. Mostly there's a reaction to getting older. There's reactivity. Putting down that contention with where we are, whatever stage we are at. And so, as we pay attention to how we relate to this process, like with anything, where is the learning, where is the wisdom, and where is the compassion that comes in relationship to your, this experience? Because that's the doorway to finding a sense of peace. So I'll read a poem that I think kind of humorously points to this. Sometimes poetry and humor is one doorway into finding a light way of holding experience. Some Billy Collins. The name of, these are talking about books. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you've never read, never even heard of. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planet, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, or the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, or even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen, it has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. Well, well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. And on it goes. I think I'm missing some lines in there, but anyhow, you get the you get the drift. So I'm just going to point to a few places where I think it's worthy for us to just bring a little consideration and, and reflection and uh, how we're holding ourselves. And of course, the most obvious place is the body, because that's where we see, for the most part, the most tangible reflection of our aging. You know, in our skin, in our health, in our vitality in our suppleness, um, in our ability, in our capacity. Um, And again, the more that we struggle 
with that, the more that we suffer. You know, I've noticed, you know, being very outdoorsy, um, but not being as as uh, athletic as I used to be. And um, so I live in Sausalito, and uh, there's a um, the Spencer Avenue steps. There's about 50 minute steep bunch of steps going up to up to the headlands and beautiful hiking and. Um, <clears throat> Actually, a better, a better example. So I used to work, so I work at this wilderness ranch called Vicetas at 9,000 feet. So you walk up the hill, you feel the altitude. And there's this beautiful rock face. I used to hike up every day when I first went there when I was 26. It's a good hike. It's a good half-hour hike up a steep cliff. And um, it'd just be my morning, like, before breakfast, little stroll, you know, <laughs> at altitude. <laughs> and now I go there, I look at it go, that's a nice hill. <laughs> I don't need to hike a bit. I might do occasionally. And I go slow. And I appreciate going slow. It's like, okay, I just go slower than I used to. And I can appreciate the sweetness of that. Like, I don't need to bolt up it. I could probably have a heart attack, but I don't need to. <laughs> and so there's kind of a pleasure in just this, just like, okay, well, this is my body now. It's not, you know, it's still healthy and still vital and still hike and stuff but to meet it where it is rather than have some idea of how I should be based on something from 25 years ago so I think one of the the you know the the greatest suffering around this theme is around comparing comparing ourselves with how we used to be comparing ourselves with our peers or with people younger than us or with how we think we should be whatever that story is. So can we be kind and patient with our body, with all of its aches and pains and organ recitals? So I think the, um, an even more poignant um, area is around relationships. And I was just talking with a dear friend of mine who now moved to London and is later moving to Europe. And um, how, as we get older, our friendships, uh, you know, just by nature of life, people moving, people dying, relationships changing, that they thin out, generally speaking. And the older we get, the harder it is to establish deep, lifelong friendships. Possible, always possible. There's a world full of amazing people. But... Um, the, my experience it's um, the, the tends to be a, a pruning and a thinning of relationships and that's a very poignant thing and a very vulnerable thing given how important friends are and deep relationships are and particularly as we enter into this path and the, the path of community and, and sangha same with marriages and, and long-term relationships. They change their, their nature. We, they can thrive and we can also drift apart and feel quite alone in them. Or as I've had to work with many students who've you know, been in relationships for 10, 20, 30 years and suddenly they're single at 55 and they're having to deal with online dating. The dreaded curse for some, you know, blessing for others. But um, like, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) 
What's tender? Really? I mean, really? And then our careers, you know, which is often how we define our life path. And they may thrive, and they may also wither. Or we may, um, you know, as often happens, wake up um, you know, what's classically called a midlife crisis, where we realize our life and our work is out of alignment with who we are and what we value. I think it's really important that we continually reflect on our values and, our, and what's meaningful, what gives us purpose, because if we don't, we'll wake up in any moment in that midlife crisis of, what am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What am I doing with my precious time and my precious life and my skills? Sometimes I work with people who've really made it in their career. Very successful, top of the game, CEO, whatever. Entrepreneur, startup, successful, IPO, blah-de-blah. And, and, and making it and being at the top of the career can equally be as dissatisfying because the reflection comes, oh, I made it. This is it. This is what my culture told me this was what I should achieve. You know, success, money, fame, etc. But it doesn't do it. It can be tremendous triggering of a dark night of the soul. So whether we succeed or don't succeed, it, this time can be a very fertile reflection. And I hear this a lot also when I work in, I work in a lot of tech companies, um, but also in other companies. And um, the fear in this stage in life of being um, sidelined by the younger generation. I hear this in every walk of life. From spiritual teachers worried about the new generation, certainly in tech, in law, in medicine. Um, and it's also real. You know, there's a lot of ageism, particularly in tech, particularly in certain industries. Or we have we, we you know we we're reflecting on our on our relationship to, to money, to financial security and um, whether we have enough, not enough, too much and what to do with that at this stage in our lives right? where there's maybe less access to income generation. But I think the, the, what's been interesting to me is around narratives around our life and who we are, what we thought our life was about, what we thought, where we thought where we were going, what we thought was useful to achieve, and where we actually end up, which is often quite different than what we imagined, what we aspired to, what we were told should happen. Right? Nice house in the burbs, and the picket fence, and 2.2 children. And so for me, it's been an interesting reflection of um, just reflecting on 
where life is and the certain poignancy of like, oh, oh, it's kind of like this and I could change it and I could do different things. But it's also got its own trajectory and um, uh, you know, and I'm very blessed in my life. I feel very grateful to be able to do this work. Um, and there's also just the reflection, oh, is this it? Is this it? Really? This is it? Okay. I guess it is it, because this is it. How could it be anything else? It's not what I imagined. Right? I remember when I first had that revelation, I was probably in my 40s, and I, and I was, you know, I was working hard to become, not become, but to develop my teaching and grow and find a way to make a living and be a therapist and this and that. And at some point, it's like it all started to come together and things were happening and it was flowing. And so everything was sort of, all the things I'd aspired to was suddenly it happened. And then there was that reflection like, wow, well, this is it. It's really not delivering what I thought it would deliver. <laughs> it's good. But we have so much hopes and expectations about basically quenching this deep existential dis-ease called life <laughs> that we hope something is going to fix whether it's our marriage our relationship our kids our grandkids our career our money all of it and it just doesn't stop poking a little itch you know, the, 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 in this midlife phase the change in one's relationships to one's children Children leave, and the and the the challenge that brings up. That's been a major part of your identity for twenty, twenty-five years, and suddenly there's a void. They don't have anything to do with you, or maybe they move back in <laughs> five years later. It's like, what am I supposed to do with that? This is from, I'm not sure where I saw this quote. There are two barriers that often prevent communication between the young and their elders. The first is middle age forgetfulness of the fact that they themselves are no longer young. And the second is youthful ignorance of the fact that middle aged people are still alive. So as we, as we age, and I'm going to wrap up here, as we age, I think one of the more poignant aspects for our, from a perspective of our Dharma practice is what, how it impacts our identity, how it impacts our sense of self and who we take ourselves to be. Because it starts to shift as things fall away, as we grieve, as we change. And so just to reflect on the story that you tell yourself about your identity and your life stage and what that means and how real that is and whether that narrative is a source of great suffering or not. What story do you tell to yourselves? What story do you tell to others? What story do you portray on Facebook and Instagram? And I think for me, one of the vitalizing reflections around this time is asking myself, because time feels like it's running out. The years feel like they're running out. Opportunities are diminishing. That's how it feels from my perspective. And so the question it leaves me is, what do I want to do with this precious time? 
What I want to, like Mary Oliver says at the end of her poem, what do you want to do with this one wild and precious life? How do I want to give back? How do I want to serve? Right? So for me, at this point in my life, it's about how can I make a positive contribution? How can I use all of my skills and learnings and whatever to make a difference in the world, to have a positive impact? And so there's something very energizing and juicy and enlivening about making that really central. Like what's important to me is you know, making a difference, helping others, helping the earth, helping us wake up to the beauty of this planet, helping others to wake up to the need to steward this planet and each other. So it can also be a time of tremendous service and, and generosity of giving back of the many blessings and the bounties that we've received. And to be mindful of how in the different phases of life, and I, as, as I'm talking, I'm going to say this at the beginning, but I'll say it at the end, you know, of course, I feel like a blundering idiot giving this talk because I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm doing my best to talk from my own experience about something that I'm growing into as we're all growing into and you know, trying to get our, ha- our hands around. But to reflect on what needs or you know, what, what will support us in these different phases of life. What supports you, for those of you in midlife, maybe what you need has changed. And what drives us is our habits. You know, we're creatures of habits. We often go along in a very kind of robotic way, not actually alive to what's really needed here. You know, one of the things I think that's most supportive is Connection, friendship, community, like-minded people. That's why we come together in places, gatherings like this. Hard to do this stuff alone. Hard to face some of these things alone. And then lastly, and I feel like this is an important reflection also, as much as I've been talking about aging and transience, to also reflect and inquire into taking refuge in that which doesn't age. What is it that doesn't age? What is it in this life that doesn't change? What refuge do you have in the midst of this mass of changing stuff that you can find some refuge and ballast in? It's not your creaky knees, which mine are starting to creak. Maybe we can take joy in the fact that Dharma talks get shorter as the teachers get older because they get too achy in their bodies and they need to move and shift the conversation. So we have a little time for uh, questions.
questions, reflections. So we have mics, and um, I'm mostly just curious, you know, any, any reflections from what I've been saying, any reflections in your own experience as you walk through life, and, and how does your practice inform uh, inform you as you you know as you get older, as you confront aging, midlife, before or after? Anybody wish to share anything that comes to mind as you listen? Weaker knees. Weaker knees. Yes, those knees and joints. They're a little. Um, Challenged. Yes. Hey there, uh, thank you. Um, I'm just wondering if it was the fact. I know that you said you have a, a birthday or you had a birthday. Uh, one of the two. Um, I didn't say that. Are you approaching fifty? No, I no, I passed that. You passed, passed it. that milestone. Right. Yeah, must be getting older. Um, be careful. <laughs> Uh, um, so I'm kind of wondering if was it that that kind of sparked the idea of doing the talk of tonight was it was it a number or was it just uh, no I was working with this group so I'm working with this group of um, as I said professional women who are all in the you know around this you know 50 50s um Age and just some some interesting reflections as I'm working with them around you know just some existential predicaments that arise as we get older and um, just how rich a field it is right I mean so you know the the point of these teachings is to relate to our lives right with wisdom right and one of the more challenging dimensions of life is aging. Aging of the body, loss of loved ones, you know, shaking up of our identity, etc. And so I just think, I just thought it was useful given I'm in that age group and um, that I thought it would be interesting to share some reflections um, for people around how we all hold our aging process, whatever age we are, you know, and um, you know, I think for the most part, culturally, we don't, we don't think too much about it until a certain point in midlife, um, and then it becomes more pertinent, and then gets more pertinent as we get alive. My dear friend Anna Douglas um, started a whole Dharma teaching uh, around the Dharma of aging. She does retreats for people 55 and over, and it's been a tremendous resource for people who are dealing with aging and um, you know latter parts of life and how, how do we bring these teachings of wisdom and compassion to that, you know, which you know, life doesn't get easier. So that's the intention. So and, and would you say that um Everyone probably has a different relationship to aging. Like, of course, yeah, yeah, and it's mixed. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm aware that this talk, you know, isn't going to relate to some people, and 
you know, it's just true of all talks. And um, but at some point there will be a relationship to aging, <laughs> and these teachings, you know, with the essence of them around mindfulness and meeting what is and meeting it with kindness and noticing the stories like I didn't talk about some of the stories the narratives we have like and I see this with students a lot this, the tremendous suffering that comes around the stories of the future what happens when I'm older and I'm alone or what if I die alone or any number of terrifying stories that are completely suffering in the moment and we have no idea what actually will happen so um you know, the more we bring our practice to bear on these topics, hopefully we bring we have some you know greater discernment and hopefully compassionate attention with them. Yeah. Thank you. Please, in the in the oh yes yes, and then there's a chap here in the grey in the middle. Hi. Thanks so much. Um, when you say, okay, this is one sunsetless. Mm. Or it is one full moonless. My reaction to that was, oh my God, I see another full moon. I see another sunset. Mm-hmm. How terrific. <laughs> and it's like the, the complete opposite. It feels like the complete opposite mm. to me. Mm. And it's, uh, not the, it's, it's not the opposite. It's, um, it's, a, it's the different frame, but the experience can be the same. When I say right. one less, I don't go, oh crap. I go, Oh, one less! I really, how great I get to see this. So it it, it it's actually it revs up the attention because, like, mm-hmm. oh, don't take this for granted. This might, you know, it's precious. It's, you know. And and as far as other aging issues is concerned, for myself, I have found, with the help of of meditation, so much easier to let things go mm-hmm. and. Or accept them either way. Mm-hmm. To the, particularly the little things that we always find so important, mm-hmm. and that really are not, mm-hmm. at least for me, mm-hmm. that I can say, "Oh, so what? You know, it's okay." Right. And I did not ever used to feel that way, right. except for the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you bring up an interesting thing, which is, for me, been an age-old inquiry, which is, you know, when one has practiced a long time, which therefore means one has aged during those years of practice. You know, maybe you've been practicing for 20, 30 years, like I have, and we find that we relate to experience differently, a little more lighter, a little more spaciously, a little less reactively, a little less, you know, uptight or whatever. The reflection for me is, is that just age? Is that the wisdom of aging? Or is that the wisdom of practice? Or is it both? Are they the same? Are they different? One will never know, because you, couldn't, you can't do a double-blind study on yourself. <laughs> you can't go back in time. You know, I like to think that practice has a lot to do with that. And there's also something, there's just the fruit of aging, where we just, there is you know, that lovely line from the Tao Te Ching, kind-hearted as a grandmother. You know, just that's a spaciousness that comes from aging and practice. There was a mic, uh, yeah, here, and then then uh, the chap in. Well, we've only got time for one more, but this chap here in the grey shirt was next. If you, yeah. 
So, thank you. Um, when I was in my 30s, I used to teach classes about aging, when I thought I knew something about aging. Uh, I'm now in my 70s, and I know a bit more. <laughs> Several things stand out from that period. One was um, Florida Scott Maxwell, British psychoanalyst who wrote in her 80s and 90s that I would recommend to anyone for just brilliant insights. The one that I'll mention is something like, Every time I experience a new pain, I look around, or ache, I look around and I say, death, is that you? So far it says, don't be silly, it's only me. <laughs> and the other is Colonel Sanders, who about 90 gave an interview about life, and he was asked, what do you think of old age? He thought and he said, old age fascinates me. I hope someday to get there. <laughs> so... I would say an interesting response to your question. Um, in this evening, when you mentioned the downward slope of the woman, who your friend who turned 70, mm. I realized when you said that she was further down the slope that I'd had a completely different reaction. I had thought that she was approaching the downward slope. Uh -huh. that, that was the change. Uh -huh. as opposed to someone in his 50s yeah. who is right. still in the ascent. Right, right. Um, it's been interesting to watch the um, saying that I'm in my 70s. I recently had the chance to work with a group of mostly 20s and 30-something people, um, and I arrived on my 75th birthday, and I wasn't going to say that and they somehow knew, and it was fine, and I got included in it. So there's a lifelong learning about acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I do find that the practice has been enormously helpful mm -hmm. in how do you want to spend your 30 seconds on this planet. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had heard your Dharma talk 20 years ago. Um, I'm glad that I'm hearing it now. I think it's timeless. Mm -hmm. and very grateful to you. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Okay, I'm aware of the time, so I'm sorry I didn't get to your question um, or comment. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, it's interesting, um, just as a in a reflection, I'm, you know, I'm aware that I'm older than some people in this room and a lot younger than a lot of people in this room. And um, it's interesting giving a talk on a subject that, well, I don't know if anyone, if, ever, if everyone becomes an authority on it. Maybe Colonel Sanders at 90, I don't know. Um, so I offer this as a, a metabolizing reflections. And I hope that some of them are useful and some of them, if they weren't, you can throw them to the wind, but like with anything, um, the point is to, is to really to, you know, shed light on, on life, you know, this facet, you know, facets of life, including aging, and, and, and really to how do we hold this very precious experience and reality from the perspective of wisdom and, and awareness. So thank you for your presence and your practice. I wish you well. 
I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to be um, I invited uh, Jacques Verdun, who uh, is founder of the Insight Prison Project, and he will bring with him two of his uh, formerly incarcerated uh, students who were incarcerated for, I don't know exactly how long, but usually they've been incarcerated for at least 25, 30, sometimes 40 years, and have done intensive meditation practice inside, a lot in San Quentin, and so they'll be sharing their experience about meditation practice inside and outside. Um, so that's going to be October 6th, Romy, something like that. Yeah, the first, yeah, two weeks time, two Mondays time. It's supposed to be very, and the, he's been here before Monday nights with Jack, and it's very, very moving. And so, welcome you to come to that also. Okay, thank you. Go well. Thanks.
Check, check. Check. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.